0: I hope you've been encouraged already this morning by the way we've been led in worship, from the prayers that have been prayed to the way Jared's led us in our singing and all of the other avenues in which we've approached God in worship. We're thankful for the presence of everybody that's here. I know we have several visitors, and we're glad that you're here. Also encouraged by high schoolers sitting up front here. They've improved our singing by at least 60% just by sitting up front, and we're glad, glad that they're here, glad you're here as well. Few people in the world have known the success, the power, and the prestige that was Nebuchadnezzar's at the height of Babylon's empire. There are only a few people that I would say could sit at that table with him as far as it relates to his success. Maybe Solomon at the height of Israel's prosperity and affluence. People like Howard Hughes and John Rockefeller. The prosperity, power, and wealth that was Nebuchadnezzar's at the height of the Babylonian empire is really unparalleled. He was the absolute monarch of the world. There were wise men and enchanters. There were poets and there were artifacts. He had the hanging gardens of Babylon, which at that time was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world with this colossal terrace trees and shrubs and the man made waterfall. The Greek historian Herodotus says that the walls were so impenetrable and thick in Babylon at this time that they could run chariot races on the top of them. He truly was a wealthy, prosperous and powerful individual. There was nothing in all that he surveyed that wasn't under his thumb. And that's what makes the events of Daniel 4 that much more unique and shocking. It's the only chapter in the whole Bible. Where a pagan, a non-Jewish religious person is actually doing the narrating and doing the talking. He's not a Jew. He's really not a follower of God. But the divine mic is passed to Nebuchadnezzar and he tells us about some things that take place with him. When you read the book of Daniel, he appears in the first three chapters. But Daniel chapter four is his final act and his curtain call. And so whatever we find in Daniel chapter four, it's the last words that God wants impressed on our hearts and our minds about this man. And so for that reason and others, we should sit up and pay attention to what he has to say to us. Bill Nye says, everybody you meet knows something that you don't. And that's true about Daniel chapter four, though he's no prophet, apostle or really preacher. in, Nebuch- in Daniel chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar has lessons to teach us. If we'll sit up and listen, that changed his life. And that hopefully will change ours. If you have your Bible, I hope you will go ahead and turn it to Daniel chapter 4. That's where our lesson is going to come from this morning. And what we're going to do is look at the chapter at a glance. What happens to Nebuchadnezzar? Why is his life so changed, as powerful as he was in Daniel chapter 4? And what are the lessons for us? Though we may not ever know the power that was his, what are six life lessons that Nebuchadnezzar teaches us about the way we should live our lives in view of who God is as a result of what he experienced? First, the chapter at a glance. The chapter begins with praise, which is probably the conclusion of what takes place in Daniel chapter four, verses one through three. He calls all peoples, nations and languages together to tell them how great God is and especially about what God had done for him. That's Daniel four, one through three. And about verses four and five, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that troubles him. Now, this isn't the first time. A similar thing had happened to him in chapter 2 and verse 1, and he did then what he did in chapter 2. He's troubled by this dream. He brings in his wise men in Daniel 4, 6, and 7 to see if they can make heads or tails out of the dream. Interpret the dream and tell me what it means. They can't. And so he calls for Daniel. In Daniel chapter 4 and verse 8, he says he calls for Daniel because he knows that in Daniel is the spirit of the gods. Daniel had interpreted dreams for him before, and he believed that Daniel could be successful again. And so he tells Daniel the dream. And Daniel hears what's taking place. Nebuchadnezzar explains Daniel four beginning in verse 10. He says there was a tree that was tall that reached high to the heavens. It was higher than all the other trees. Its leaves were luscious and beautiful and all of the animals in the world lodged under its branches for safety and the birds would hang there and they were prosperous. And then one day a voice from heaven spoke and said, cut down this tree and destroy it. Believe only its stump down through verse 13 and verse 15. It will be like a beast and seven times or seven years will pass over it until it learns that the most high rules in the kingdoms of men. And then he tells Daniel the dream. and He says, Daniel, tell me what the dream means. If you look at Daniel chapter four and verse 19, as Daniel receives the dream and is prepared to interpret, the Bible says that he's alarmed and he's shaken. And Nebuchadnezzar says, don't let the dream alarm you or shake you. Tell me what it means. And so Daniel says, OK, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the tree. Daniel 4, 20 through 21. Your kingdom has had you to be exalted above the heavens. But one day, verse 23, a voice from heaven will speak your humiliation into existence. You'll be brought down low. You'll be humbled until you learn that the most high rules in the kingdoms of men. Nebuchadnezzar will become like a beast of the field. He'll be brought down low and humbled. He'll grow out feathers and claws and Daniel says Nebuchadnezzar seven times will pass over you until you learn this lesson. And so in Daniel four, 26 and 27, he begs the king, especially in verse 27. He says, I want you to repent, repent, break off from your iniquities and sins and do righteousness and do the right thing. And maybe your prosperity will continue. And just as soon as the dream comes to Nebuchadnezzar. The interpretation and everything he had begged for departs because the Bible says in verse 29 and 30, a year later, Nebuchadnezzar is walking around the palace. And he says, notice the text in verse 30, is not this the great Babylon, which I have built for my royal residence and the glory of my majesty In his pride and arrogance and pomp. He forgot all about the dream and boast in what he feels that he had done. And just like Daniel told him what happened, it did. He's broken down. He becomes like a beast of the field. He grows out claws and feathers, and he's made to eat the grass of the field like an ox. He learns this lesson, verse 31 and 32. And as was read for us a moment ago in 34 and 35, he finally blesses and praises God for humbling him and bringing him down. And he concludes in verse 36 and 37 by saying, God is able to humble those who walk in pride. And that's it. The books close on Nebuchadnezzar so far as I can tell. He was exalted high. He was lifted up with pride and God humbled him, changed his life. So far as we know, this Babylonian king ended with his life right with God. He's changed. He repents after God takes him through this circumstance. Now, we'll never know as much power as was his. And neither will we know the supernatural correction that he experiences in Daniel chapter four and still there are lessons for us. And so let's learn those lessons so that we can live better lives as a result. Let's begin. Here's number one. We need to be individuals that welcome the truth in our lives. People will bring us truths that are sometimes hard to accept, and we all need to have hearts to welcome them. Nebuchadnezzar could have let his conscience be at ease once his wise men couldn't tell him the dream. But that's not what he does. He calls Daniel in. And once he tells Daniel the dream from verse 10 down through verse 18, notice verse 19. Daniel's alarmed. Daniel's perplexed. Daniel's uncomfortable because Daniel knows he has bad news for the king. But notice what Nebuchadnezzar says. Do not let the dream or the interpretation trouble you. That is, I really want you to tell me what's going on. Come clean with me and express it to me. We need to be people that welcome the truth in our lives, especially when it's something uncomfortable or something we don't want. I think about first Samuel chapter three with Eli. Samuel gets up and down each night and he's having these dreams and God is communicating with Samuel about some things that are going to happen. And finally, Eli comes before Samuel and he says in first Samuel 3:17 and 18. Would you tell me what God has said, whether it's good or bad? I just want to know Buy the truth and don't sell it. Proverbs 23 and verse 23. You know, sometimes people come to us and they'll say, do you want the good news first or the what or the bad news? Our response should be just give me the news. I want the truth, whether it's good or bad, because love doesn't rejoice in iniquity. It rejoices in the truth. Listen, there's a difference in accepting the truth and welcoming the truth. Accepting the truth says I really don't want it. But if you bring it to me, I guess I'll embrace it and I'll take it. But I won't go out and seek it. Welcoming the truth says I'm on a hunt for it. I'm digging for it. I want people to bring it to me. Accepting the truth would be kind of like somebody saying to you, hey, you've got some corn in your teeth and you sheepishly put your head down and you pick it out. But welcoming the truth is saying cheese and saying to somebody, do you see anything in my teeth? There's a difference. One person says, OK, if it's brought to me, I'll deal with it. The other person says, I want you to bring it to me because I want to know what's right and I want to be changed. Paul would say in Second Timothy, chapter four, verses three and four, the time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust, they'll heap to themselves teachers having itching ears and they'll turn away their ears from the truth. That's not Nebuchadnezzar. When Daniel brings him the harsh reality of his circumstances, that life's not going to always go good for him. The interpretation of the dream will not be favorable. Nebuchadnezzar says, Daniel, don't hold back. I know you're alarmed. I know you're fearful, but I really need to know the truth. Praise God for the Daniels in your life. There are people that God brings into our lives that tell us things that we really don't want to hear. But we ought to rejoice and thank God for them. and tell them you always have an open door policy to tell me where I'm mistaken, to tell me where I'm wrong, because I want to do better. In Psalm 141 in verse five, the psalmist says, let a righteous man strike me and it'll be a kindness. Let him rebuke me and it'll be as oil on my head. I want to know what's right so that I can change. I want to be better as a result of learning the truth. King Ahab in the Old Testament had a lot of problems. He practiced idolatry. He married wicked Jezebel. The Bible says he did more evil than all of the kings of Israel that were before him. But probably his greatest issue was this point. He couldn't welcome the truth. One time he wanted to make a decision to go to battle in Ramoth, Gilead and Jehoshaphat. The other king says, hey, we probably should check in with God's spokesman. Have you checked in with the prophets? He says, there is another prophet, Micaiah. But I hate him because he only prophesies evil concerning me and not good. He wasn't concerned about the truth. He wanted to be made to feel better. And sometimes we would rather be killed with flattery than corrected with the truth. We'd rather people tell us that everything's well when it's really not than to be confronted with the reality that there are some things in our lives that need to be changed. Nebuchadnezzar says, listen to me, you can only be changed and corrected when you learn the truth. What does Jesus say in John 8 and verse 32? You will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Jesus says the truth will make you free. He says nothing about how the truth will make you feel. We sometimes focus on well, maybe the message isn't right because I don't feel good after having received it. We need the truth even when it makes us uncomfortable. And maybe especially in those moments, I don't know if you've seen the movie, but I know you know the line from a few good men, Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson. There's that exchange and Cruz is cross examining Nicholson and he says, give me the facts. And Nicholson says, you want facts? He says, no, I want the truth. And what does Nicholson say? You can't handle the truth. And maybe as you examine your life, there are just some areas where you don't welcome the truth. You don't want people to tell you the truth about your spiritual standing. You're lost. The Bible says you're not in a safe condition and you would rather people don't talk to you about it. Acts 4 and verse 12 says there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And you would rather people not talk to you about it, but you should welcome it. Maybe it's our relationship status and what Jesus says in Matthew 19:4 through nine about marriage and about an individual being in a God approved marriage where God sanctifies it. And somebody says, well, I'm not in that condition. And I would rather let's just not talk about that. But we should be individuals that welcome the truth. Maybe it's our stewardship and it's sort of sloppy and we always find ourselves overspending. Solomon would say in Proverbs 21 and verse 20, a fool spins it up. And we need people to confront us and say, you probably should be wiser in your dealings. Or maybe it's our attitude. Whatever the case may be, we need to be like Nebuchadnezzar and say, tell me what's right so that I can make amends. Tell me the truth so that I can be the person that God wants me to be. Here's number two. Nebuchadnezzar teaches us in Daniel four that God rules in the kingdoms of men. Some people have said that this this statement is really the key to the whole book of Daniel. It appears so often that it seems this is the the major thrust of the entire book, that God rules in the kingdoms of men, that God's the one that's really in charge. And it's pretty ironic because Daniel chapter four is all about Nebuchadnezzar thinking he's in charge and that he runs the world. And God assures him you don't. You're not in charge. I'm the one that's truly the ultimate sovereign. That runs the world Daniel teaches us in chapter 4 through Nebuchadnezzar that God rules in the kingdoms of men and we need this lesson the reality for Nebuchadnezzar was this as great as his empire was at the height of Babylon's Empire he didn't rule and when a serious time would come they didn't rule and the Greeks and the Romans they didn't rule God rules in the kingdoms of men America doesn't rule Democrats don't rule Republicans don't rule you know who rules God rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whoever he wills. Now, we can amen that point, but the reality is our discomfort when the political situation doesn't go our way, betrays our amen, that we really don't believe this point that God rules in the kingdoms of men. And we think, well, maybe if we had more power, if things were going more our way, things would be satisfactory. And what Nebuchadnezzar learned is a lesson everybody in the world needs to learn. And that is God is the one who's ultimately in charge and not men. All authority in the world is delegated authority and God gives it to whoever he wills. Look at Daniel chapter two. Hold your hand in Daniel four and go back to Daniel chapter two. Similar idea. Nebuchadnezzar can't sleep. There's a dream. He needs an interpretation. Who does he call Daniel? Daniel chapter two and verse twenty one says that God is the one that's in charge. He sets up kingdoms and brings them down. He puts individuals in authority. He gives wisdom and understanding and anybody that has it has it because God's loaned it to him. God rules in the kingdoms of men, not men. Jeremiah 27 and verse five, God says, I made the heavens and the earth. I put man and beast there and I give the kingdoms to whoever seems well to me. Somebody says, can that really be true? Does God like and approve of every religious leader? No, he doesn't approve of all of their actions, but he does approve and solidify their existence. So Romans 13 and verse one, Paul says, let every soul be subject to the higher powers, the powers that be are ordained of God. There is no power except from God. Psalm 62, 11, once has God spoken, twice have I heard this power belongs to God. Somebody says, what does this have to do with me? I'm no monarch. I'm not in any political situation where I will ever have power. It has something to say to every one of us. If God rules, then that means that you and I don't rule. If God is God alone and he is Isaiah 43, 10 and 11, he says, I'm God and beside me, there is no savior. That means we're not. It means we don't have to know everything and we're never going to be in power in the same way that he is. And we need to learn to accept that reality. Nebuchadnezzar struggled and God wants him to know it. Would you notice the text? Look at Daniel chapter four. And if you write in your Bible, I just want you to underline and see how many times this phrase and this idea is repeated in this chapter. Daniel chapter four and verse 17. God rules in the kingdoms of men. And then he says he gives it to the lowliest or to whoever he pleases. It appears again in verse 25. God rules and reigns in the kingdoms of men. And then in verse 32. And while the exact phrase is not found in verse 35, the same sentiment is there. And that's this. All the power in the world is God's. First Chronicles 29 and verse 12. God says, I'm God over all and I give it to who I please. And we might think to ourselves as Christians, you know, I believe this. I believe in six day creation, that God created the heavens and the earth and spoke it into existence. But sometimes. We might behave and think as if, you know what, God created the world and he was involved a long time ago, but he's sort of gone off on a long vacation. And if you watch the news, it's as if humans are throwing this big house party in his absence. And Daniel says, you know what, God didn't just create the world and he's not even at a distance surveying and looking over the world in which we live. Daniel says it's worse than that for people that are doing evil. God is actually involved in our world. God looks on the world and he rules among the kingdoms of men. He's not distant and far off. In the days of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23, verse 23 and 24, he says, am I not a God that's near and not one who's far off? He says, who can hide himself from me? Do I not feel the heavens and the earth? And Nebuchadnezzar needed to know God rules and not man. I don't know what your work situation is like, and maybe you don't like your boss. Maybe you feel stepped on and stepped over. Maybe at school you're not with the cool kids and it feels like other people are in charge and you're never going to get a leg up. You're never going to be in the group. Listen, the people that step on you and step over you, they don't rule. God rules. And maybe you swing a big stick in this town. People like you. They know you when you walk in the room. People stand up. They greet you. They ask you for favors. People, they want your opinion. You're included. You're important. That's a blessing. But you don't rule. God rules. Ephesians 6, 9. There's a master in heaven who's sovereign over everybody in the earth. And Nebuchadnezzar really needed to be brought down to size. It's interesting to me. Daniel 4, 23 says when he's cut down like a tree, there will still be the stub. What does that mean? It means when Daniel, when God reduces Nebuchadnezzar down to really a Babylonian Chia head The kingdom of Babylon was still going to reign. They were still going to do God's will. You know why? Because Nebuchadnezzar wasn't holding up the kingdom of Babylon. God was. Colossians 1:17 says you and I don't hold our lives together. In Jesus Christ, everything consists. And our lives are better when we realize this. The sovereignty of God means sanity for his people. When we realize it's really not all up to me and I don't make all the decisions and I'm not the one that's ultimately in control. God is. Romans 8 and verse 28. That's great news for us and not bad. And Nebuchadnezzar needs to learn. God rules in the kingdoms of men. When you learn this lesson, you can sleep better at night. You can do your part and work the way that God wants you to. But we're not frantic and up in arms like everybody else, because when Jesus said all authority belongs to me in heaven and on earth, he meant that. He didn't just mean I've got authority in all the religious matters. I have authority in every matter that matters because he rules. Here's number three. Nebuchadnezzar need to learn. He teaches us this lesson. We ought to repent for our own good. He says, Daniel, would you tell me the interpretation of the dream? Daniel says, this is going to be bad news for you, but I need to break it to you. And he tells him. But then he gives him an opportunity. Notice verse 27. He says, would you break off from your unrighteousness and your sins and practice righteousness? Turn away from your iniquity, verse 27, and do justice. Now, notice the last line in verse 27. He says that perhaps the days of your prosperity may be prolonged. If you just repent and do the right thing, Nebuchadnezzar, things may go well for you. Nebuchadnezzar teaches us that every one of us should repent for our own good. What is repentance? The Bible says repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. And there are many reasons why we should repent. We don't want to go to hell. We don't want to disappoint God. All of those are good and viable reasons. But there's another one. We should do it for our own good. Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Luke 13 and verse three. And in verse five, he says the same thing. It's for our own benefit that we should turn away from sin and do the things that God would have us to do. And we hold on to sin to our own detriment. You know, throughout the Bible, God has spared people and nations great destruction simply because they repented. When you turn away from sin, God says, well, I'll I'll ease up on the punishment. Nebuchadnezzar might not have turned into what he did if he would have just repented. Jonah went to Nineveh. He had eight words in his sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. You know what the people of Nineveh said? They said, there's really no promise of forgiveness here. But perhaps if we repent, God will relent from the punishment and won't destroy us. They repented and God did. Ahab, as wicked as he was. First Kings 21, 25 through 29, what he did in killing Naboth and taking his vineyard with his wife Jezebel, he repented. And God said, you know what? We're not going to destroy him. Not today. We'll maybe take it out on his descendants, but we won't kill him today. Zacchaeus meets Jesus. He says, behold, the fourfold of my goods I restored to the poor. And if I've cheated any man, I'll pay that back, too. Jesus says today salvation has come to this house because you've repented. And who can forget Paul, a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But he obtained mercy. Why? Because he repented. When John the Baptist, Jesus and the apostles went throughout the Roman Empire preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They were calling out a judgment on the world, but they were also announcing good news and saying you should repent because it'll be great for you repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand means this turn from your sins because God is going to do something great in the world and you don't want to miss out repent for your own good maybe you've seen the commercials from truth international company started in 1998 the whole thrust of the company was to turn teens away from smoking they sometimes had edgy commercials I almost put a picture up here from one of the commercials but I didn't want to spoil your lunch so thank you they would have people in these commercials that had smoked for years and have cancer now, and maybe have a little voice box. You've seen those before. They can't even talk. And they're saying, look, this is what happen to you. If you smoke, you don't want to do this. This is how your life is going to go. And these commercials were designed to have a sort of shock value to say you don't want to go this route. And by the way, if you're already on this road, you want to change. The people from truth were saying, listen, you need to turn away from smoking, not for our benefit, but for yours. You need to do this because it'll be for your own good. God says to the people of Israel in the days of Ezekiel in chapter 33 and verse 11, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I would rather that he turn from his way and live. Turn, Israel, turn. Why will you die, O house of Israel? You should repent because it's for your benefit and it's for your good. Every one of us of accountable age is guilty of dragging our feet in relation to sin. Things that we know we should turn from and we just sort of take our time and the rationalization is always great, right? I'm going to repent. I'm going to change my ways at a later date. I've got to give this up, but I've, I'm going to do a few things first and then I'm going to turn. And the Bible saying you're missing out. Instead of asking ourselves, how difficult would it be to give up this habit? Drinking, smoking, pornography, lying, cursing, my attitude, my anger, instead of saying to ourselves, you know what, I've been doing this so long, I can't imagine living without it. What we should be saying to ourselves is this. What joy, what peace and what blessings am I missing out on as I sip from this spiritual poison that may ultimately damn my soul? What am I missing out on by holding on to sin and rationalizing and holding out? Jesus says, what would a man give in exchange for his own soul? Mark eight and verse thirty seven. Nebuchadnezzar, if you just repent, your prosperity will be prolonged. You'd be doing yourself a favor if you do the right thing and turn away from sin. God says, let go of sin because I want to put something else in your hand and bless you. Sin destroys. And God says, I don't want it to ruin you. I want you to be rescued. This doesn't mean that we only repent because we want a blessing from God or what God's going to give us. But it does mean that we do need to repent. And when we do, we're the one that receives the blessing. Turn your Bible to Acts chapter three. Hold your hand in Daniel four and go to Acts three and notice what Peter says in about verse 19. It's Peter's second sermon. And he's again calling people to repent, just like he did in Acts 238. But in Acts 319, he says, repent and turn. That's the command. Why should I do this? That your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and he'll send Christ to you whom the heavens must receive. You see, Peter says, repent that your sins may be blotted out. Times of refreshing will come from the Lord for you is for your benefit. Nebuchadnezzar could have repented and he would have been blessed, but he held on to his sin and he paid a hefty price. Here's number four. God wants to save you from you. You read about what happens with Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter four, and it's pretty amazing. He walks on the top of his palace and he says, this is the great Babylon that I have built. And immediately heaven speaks of his condemnation. He begins to be transformed into this gremlin like creature. He's growing out fangs and he's growing out claws and feathers. And you've got to ask yourself the same question I was asking myself this week as I was studying this lesson. We should be wondering, why did God do do this to him? Somebody says it was punishment, sort of. But perhaps... It was God's last ditch effort to save Nebuchadnezzar from Nebuchadnezzar. God drastically wants to save you from you and me from me. And sometimes he will do things in our lives that we don't think make sense to save us from our own worst enemy, which is occasionally ourselves. Just think through the Bible and some of the things God did to people to kind of reroute their condition and point them in the right direction. Saul was blinded on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter nine. Jeroboam stretched out his hand. to hurt a prophet in 1 Kings 14 and his hand shriveled up so that he wouldn't do the unthinkable. (coughs) Jonah was in the fish's belly for three days in Jonah chapter two. Why did he do that to save Jonah from Jonah? And sometimes God is doing everything that he can to save us from ourselves. We can be our own worst enemy. He tried everything with Nebuchadnezzar. He gave him a dream. He sent him a prophet and even a call to repentance in verse 27. And after all of that had been ignored, he says, well, this is what it's going to take for you. This is what it's going to take for you to get to where I want you to be. And we've got to do this to save you. Sometimes we pray for things and we really think we need them. And God's saying, nope, I can't give you that. It'll ruin you. I really want to go in this direction. And God says, we're going to reroute. Because if I give you that, if we go this direction, this will destroy you. It'll ruin you. God will take drastic measures in order to save us from ourselves. Ask Paul. God is willing to let a thorn in the flesh remain so that our faith can remain intact. Paul says, I bet God three times. God says, no, Paul, you've seen great things. And without this thorn, you may become lifted up with pride and there be no more Apostle Paul. So rather than that happen, this thorn in the flesh, I know it's uncomfortable, but it's helpful and necessary. You need this so that you're not ruined. Samson, you're strong. You're mighty. You've got great gifts and great talents. You won't be able to see until you lose your eyes. It's necessary. I know it's drastic. It's going to hurt. Judges 16, 28. But you won't see me as you should until that happens. Now, don't hear me saying what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that God brings bad things in our lives on purpose to wreck us and ruin us. But here's what I am saying. God uses those things in our lives for his good and his glory. God is willing to take trinkets, toys, promotions, positions and gifts out of our lives so that we can climb up closer to him. God's willing to put us in situations we would rather not like. When this happens to Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of the account, he's happy that it did. And God was saving Nebuchadnezzar from himself. And what we learn from this is. God wants to do the same thing with us. God looks at us and he says, if I left you with the controls, you'd ruin yourself. And so occasionally I've got to steer you in the direction that will lead to your longevity and help you to be the person I want you to be. Here's number five. God can humble anybody. Daniel four and verse 37. The last thing that Nebuchadnezzar says in this chapter is God is able to humble those who walk in pride. He learned this lesson. It permeates throughout the Bible. God hates the proud, Proverbs 6, 16, and 17. God destroys the house of the proud, but he establishes the habitation of the widows, Proverbs 15 and verse 25. Pride seems to exalt us, but it brings us low, Proverbs 29 and verse 23. God can humble the proud and arrogant individual, and Nebuchadnezzar teaches us this lesson. He walks about as if he made Babylon, and God says that's not true. In the end, all forms of pride are cosmic plagiarism. Pride takes that which is a gift and claims to be the author. God says, I've given you this. And pride says, no, this is all me. We often boast about things we had nothing to do with. Our face, our race, and our place. We had nothing to do with those things. You didn't choose the way you look. Now, maybe afterwards, cosmetic surgery, you can change. But the way you came out originally, you are the way you are. We're happy about where we're from. You didn't choose where you were born. God put you there. Your nationality, you had nothing to do with that. All of those things that we put so much pride in. God says, I've given you those things. Nobody has any right to boast before me. I'm the one that ought to be exalted. In James chapter four and verse six, James says, God exalts the humble, but he brings the proud down. First Peter five and verse five echoes the same thing. And so God's challenge to everybody in the world is this. If you bring yourself low, I'll lift you up. And if you lift yourself up, then I'll bring you down low. You get to choose and so do I. There's nobody in the world that's been lifted up so high that God doesn't have to come down to interact with them. In Genesis chapter 11, they're building the Tower of Babel and they're proud of what they've accomplished. And God says, let's go down and see what they're doing. Genesis 11:6 6 and 7. And Herod thought he was this great speaker and gave glory to himself and not God. Acts 12, 20 through 22. And God struck him and he died that night. And what Nebuchadnezzar learns is God is able to humble the proud. It's easy to see this in the lives of others. But it's humbling to realize God can humble me and he can humble you if we don't do it ourselves. The one thing in life you want to beat God to the punch at doing, I would argue probably the only thing that we could beat God to the punch at is humbling ourselves. God says, let's race. If you beat me there, I won't do it. But if you delay, I'll do it. And you probably won't like it. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He'll exalt you in his own time. James 4 and verse 10 and Nebuchadnezzar learned this lesson, and he had to learn it the hard way because he rejected it. Go back and try to talk to Nebuchadnezzar and ask him what he would have done. His response would probably be, I would have done it first. When Daniel approached me, I would have stayed in my place and realized that, you know what? Rather than boasting about the great Babylon that I built, I would have realized that it was the Babylon that God built and that he loaned to me. What do you have in life that you haven't received? And if you've received it, Paul says, why do you act as if it's not a gift? First Corinthians chapter four and verse seven. We need to kill and crucify the pride in us that makes us think we're better than others. We're be- we're- we earn something. We deserve it. And we have something to boast in. Nebuchadnezzar teaches us the way to go is the humble way. And that's the way that God exalts Proverbs 11 and verse two. How do you kill pride in your life? Here are a few practices to kill pride. Number one, contemplate heavenly worship. When you read the book of Revelation, what you find is all of the attention, all of the focus is on almighty God. And when you realize that, it shows us how small we are. Jared's done a great job this morning. Many of our songs have been about praise and exalting God, and we need that. Here's number two. Become a better listener. When you listen to other people, you realize they know a lot more about things than you do. You're not omniscient and neither am I. We've got a lot to learn from other people. Number three, confess your sins, your shortcomings and your mistakes. One sure way to kill pride is just to open up about when you failed, when you've blown it and when you've missed it. And acknowledge that and don't pretend as if you've always done everything right, because none of us have. You want to kill pride in your life? Learn to simply enjoy the basic things in life. One of our greatest weaknesses, especially in our fastly changing world, is we're not as impressed with the ordinary as we should be. Who says we deserve sunshine or rain or heat or cold? Who do we think we are? Learn to enjoy the simple things in life. It'll bring us down low and we'll say like the psalmist. Psalm 116 and verse 12. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits concerning me? Nebuchadnezzar could have saved himself a lot of heartache and a lot of embarrassment if he would have beat God to the punch and humbled himself. But he didn't. And God leaves the challenge to us. Stevenson says eventually every man must sit at a table of his own consequences and humility is the only thing that allows us to sit at that table and utter a bon appetit because we'll be glad that we humbled ourselves, and we'll be glad for what we're going to feast on. Now, here's the sixth and final thing from Nebuchadnezzar, and that is God is worthy of praise. This chapter begins with praise in chapter four, verses one through three, and then it ends with praise. In verse 34 and 35, he talks about God ruling in kingdoms forever and ever, about God being all wise and about nobody being able in verse 35 to say to God, what are you doing? He runs the entire world. Nebuchadnezzar praises God for everything that God's done. And he's right. The most powerful man in the world has his entire life wrecked. It crashes. And when it's all said and done, he's glad it happened. And you know why that's the case? Because no matter how proud we are, the human heart knows better. And our souls are cracking under this arrogance, and we know we don't belong there. Paul says we're without excuse, Romans 1, 20 and 21. And when God finally brings him back down to reality, he says, finally, this is where I belong. And he's glad it happened to him. He does the only responsible thing to do, and that is he praises God for putting him back in his proper place. Many of the New Testament letters end with praise. You think about the book of Jude, Jude 24 and 25. Jude has that doxology to God only wise who is able to keep us from falling. Be glory, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. Those letters end with praise because after we've done all that we can do and said all that we can say, the proper response is to glorify in and to praise almighty God. And that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar does. You could read Daniel 4:34 and 35 and pick these words right up out of the book of Daniel and drop them in the book of Psalms. And this pagan singing psalmist shows us how to praise God. If he were preaching this morning, he would say to you and to me, do you have any idea how awesome your God is? Do you know it? And does he know that you know it? God is to be praised. Sometimes I go out to eat or maybe I'm even at home. I'm so hungry. I just sit down. and I start eating without thinking about it. Maybe that's happened to you before and maybe in your own mind or somebody else says it to you. They'll say something like, hey, wait a minute. We hadn't prayed yet. You're halfway through the meal. You're just jumped in. And somebody said, hey, we hadn't prayed over the food yet. You can't eat without praying. Don't get halfway through your borrowed life and you're just living full speed. And you say, wait a minute. I hadn't praised. You can't live without praising. It's not our life. It doesn't belong to us. God is sovereign. God rules. And we shouldn't speed through life without pausing to realize the praise that he's due. Psalm 33 and verse one says glory is right and fitting for God and praise is fitting for the upright in heart. We need to make sure that we like Nebuchadnezzar praise God. So far as we can tell, Nebuchadnezzar's life ends on the note of praise. So far as we can tell, he ended with a penitent heart and story. And the Bible closes it with saying he's a faithful man. I hope we get to see him in glory. Nebuchadnezzar shows us what a true heart of humility looks like when God brings us down to size. He's not an apostle. He's not a prophet. He's not a preacher. He's a pagan king who learns a hard lesson and narrates for us what God wants to do in our lives. and That is to reshape our focus so that it's focused on him. It all began for Nebuchadnezzar with accepting the truth. When Daniel gave him the interpretation of the dream, he embraced it. And our lives will be better off when we learn to accept the truth as well. Would you appreciate this morning what Jesus has done for you? Jesus, the high and holy one, has come down to earth and become less than what he was, a human being. So we can go to glory and receive what we ultimately don't deserve. In pride, God says to Nebuchadnezzar, since you want to become more than I've made you, I'll make you less than what you really are. Jesus reverses it for us and he says, I'll become less than what I am, a human being, so one day you can go to glory with me and receive what you don't. Maybe you need to accept that invitation, become a Christian, accept the reality that you are lost outside of Jesus Christ, that there's no other plan of salvation coming. Turn from sin in obedient faith and be immersed in water to have your sins forgiven. If you need to do that, we'd be happy to assist you. Maybe you're already a Christian. And you, like Nebuchadnezzar, need to repent for your own good. We'd be willing to pray with you and pray for you. If this is your invitation, come now as together we stand and as we sing.